Joe Redfern. I um, uh, have worked as a, a fisherman. I've worked as a marine biologist. Um, and I, I really kind of tried to bring together different fields of commercial fishing and you know, it's, I guess the exploitation of our seas, but also my sort of deep rooted and I guess what I am fundamentally is a conservationist really. And, and, but, but trying to kind of come at this, uh, different perspectives of using science, commercial background and research. So, um, to kind of marry those up, I've set up the Whitby lobster hatchery, um, here in Whitby in, in North Yorkshire, where we are looking to raise and release lobsters to put back into the ocean. And for me, that kind of really um, marries up these these distinct fields quite nicely together. And um, and and we, I was kind of halfway through that project with um, others from the fishing community here in Whitby. Um, and and that's kind of when we were halfway through that, where the mass mortalities first started happening along this coastline. Um, so very much kind of been thrown into the whirlwind um, that came afterwards. Could you possibly detail for our audience which part of the English coastline the mortalities appeared on and when this was due? Yeah, certainly. So um, we first experienced any reports from, from, from wash-ups or from dead sea life. It was actually lobsters at, at first in, in keep pots and they were right out in the, the tease, mouth of the Tees estuary. So that's in the, the northeast of England um, in Cleveland, um, which is just borders on to, to Yorkshire and, and the, the extent of the wash-ups that followed that um, and, and they were very centric around the Tees estuary um, and over the, the next few weeks and months as the um, tidal flow pushed the seemed to be pushing the, the impact down the coast and we, then we experienced uh, wash-ups at Masks and, Mask and Redker at Saltburn um, uh, at Staithes uh, Sands End, which is just north of Whitby, at uh, Whitby, and then and then a little bit further down the coast to Robin Hood's Bay. So um, covers about a, I'd say about thirty or forty mile range um, from Hartlepool, just north of the Middlesbrough, um, predominantly then south down to down to Whitby, Robin Hood's Bay area. Was it only crabs that were affected in this mass mortality, or were other species washed up as well? It was primarily crabs uh, and crabs and, and lobsters. Velvet crabs were very negatively impacted, disappeared basically off the coast. But we, we have seen an impact to um, barnacles as well, uh, disappearing off the rocks. There's been reports, you know, of fish washing up, of octopus, of seaweed. I mean, we, we always tried not to become the the boy that cries wolf you know with this wind and we, natural wash-ups do occur um so it seemed like it, it impacted crabs more than anything else but it's hard to say you know when we, we've seen a higher uh, higher increase in or seen an increase in the amount of wash-ups that have happened along the coastline since the event so it is difficult to actually you know put them all back to that single case but um yeah it seems like a, a wide range of animals have been impacted but I, but crabs and lobsters are by far the ones that have been been mostly impacted. In that area, which obviously it's like you're, it'd be, we, we often refer, fishermen, we often refer to areas that they fish a lot and, and that it's a gar, their garden. <laughs> so obviously you're well 
known down there and you know a lot about the area. Am I, am I right in saying to you that prior to this, that area must have an enormous, or had an enormous stock of things like lobster. Lobster, I'm thinking of especially, and I'll tell you where I'm coming from, which you're probably aware of it. I don't know if it's happened so much now, but there was a lot of the boats, just say what we call the northeast corner of Scotland, anything from Peterhead round in by Macduff, uh, Bucky, up our way. A lot at certain times of the year, I think it was the early part of the year, a lot of them would fish down there for codlings. It was a big codling fishery. And uh, they used to, they would they would land into shields and so shields and then depending on if they were sold privately or they would put them on the Grimsby market, something like that. But we, on an, on an average, a trip, as we call it, for that boat's landings is anything between five and seven days. Seven days would be maximum. And they would they would come in and they would have 120 to 150 lobsters in a trawl. And, and that's never been heard of ever in their own local Scottish waters. Hmm. So yeah, yeah. does that... Does that Tally with you, because the impression here is that it must have been an enormous stock for that. Yeah, it, it, I mean, it was. And when what we've seen along this coast, um, since the, the, the whitefish industry um, declined over you know the, the start of the uh, millennium, so it, we've seen this huge transition towards crab and lobster fisheries. So uh, in Whitby, which is similar along the whole stretch of the coast, we've seen a 400% increase in the amount of lobsters being landed. Um, and that's because, well, m- multiple reasons, but be- because a lot of the investment went out of the whitefish and trawling industry and, and went into potting. So there's something like 300,000 pots working along this stretch of the coastline today. And um, and and about 100,000 lobsters are landed every year in, into Whitby alone, um, which is actually the third largest lobster fishery in the whole of Europe. And that's behind Scarborough, which is the second largest, and Bridlington, which is the first largest. And all three of those towns are within about a 50-mile range of each other along the Yorkshire coastline. So it is the epicenter. It's the, it's the lobster capital of, of Europe, um, this stretch of the coastline. And, and, and similarly with crabs, there was a lot of crabs being, being landed as well. It's, it's interesting because as well as that, I wonder if, if there ever been any, obviously we'll maybe come to it, but has there ever been any suspicion about f- f- the fish side of it? Because if you, and I know I'm probably preaching the converted, but when the f- cod was fished out in the Grand Banks and round by Nova Scotia and Newfoundland and all round that way, and they they literally fished the cod out, and there were almost no cod left. That area now has about forty over for about for almost fifty percent of the world lobster is caught there, and there was no lobster fishing before that. Yeah, yeah. That, I mean, that's one of the theories. You obviously cod being a 
pretty big predator on the, especially the small juvenile lobsters. And you, and you, you take away that top predator, then it's going to going to allow other species underneath it to 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 explode. And that that might be what have happened happened along here. You know, we've certainly got a good habitat along here as well um, for the lobsters to grow in. Um, just to clear all that up, you suggested there that that's what might have happened. What specifically might have happened? Sorry, so this is looking at why the lobster fishery and lobster populations might have sort of exploded. And why why we why along this stretch of the Yorkshire coastline we have you know the biggest lobster fisheries in Europe is that one of the reasons maybe that the cod fishery was uh, overfished. And the cod populations declined, and that kind of led to a boom, maybe in in lobster populations. There is a bit of a lack of data actually in the amount of you know, data in terms of lobster stock um, reports of, of lobsters and crabs over the years. Uh, a lot of it's based on fishing data, which you know has also changed because the investment went out of the whitefish industry and went into crabs and lobsters. So. Um, climate change is also a sort of theory on it where it's pushed cod stocks further north um, and, and that, that again maybe led to the decline of the whitefish industry uh, and around this stretch of the coastline and pushed it further north to, to be ahead. When I was researching for the episode, I came across a really, really interesting occurrence maybe you know this i'm gonna run it by you so in october 21 same time of the year the same year as the mortalities appeared in england slate.com in north america announced that three billion this is the same month of the same year that three billion snow crabs had vanished from the traditional fishery it decimated the north the north american snow crab season harvest and the big mystery was where did these crabs go now i think the scientific conclusion on that is that the the barrent sea heated up by a degree that degree was enough to for those three billion crabs to move and i just thought to myself is that increase in sea temperature that affected the whole snow fish snow crab fishery further north correlated with this mortality rate that was found in England, was there an increase that was maybe negative, or a, a temperature increase? But you said climate change. I'm just going to say temperature increase because it's less provocative. But do you know about that snow crab exodus happening at the same time as the crab mortality in England? And if so, what do you think about temperature increase possibly damaging the crabs and killing them, but actually making it a better environment for lobster. What's your thoughts on temperature? Yeah, I mean, I, I was aware of that. Um, and it was, you know, it was, um, it was interesting, I guess, how, how the debate, they actually shut down the fishery there, um, didn't they, to try and try and protect it. Um, and I mean, the environment and probably particularly more than a lot, the marine environments globally are under a lot of stress and a lot of pressure. And you know a lot of factors are kind of pushing them down, if you like, and it sometimes could maybe take the straw to break the camel's back or the, or the crab's back in this case. You know something that's added on to these stresses all at once um, has just caused something to to break. 
um, and and you know maybe the, the temperature anomaly um, has played a fa- played a factor. But what we've seen, you know, in the case of the Northeast, is a very in a global scale a very small localized impact surrounding you know one port effectively you know one area of the of the coastline so i would you know i would say maybe something like the temperature or the changes that's happening in our oceans i think they would happen on a bigger bigger scale you know a national or international scale um and and, and i mean nationally we do seem to be experiencing a decline in in crab stocks um but but not at the extent or the the intensity that we we felt around the the northeast originally when the story broke or when the occurrence happened there were factories on the river Tees that were accused of having used chemicals which enhance the production of steel that's to be used at sea for the building of oil rigs for the hulls of ships i think it's a chemical known as priodine is that correct have you heard of this priodine pyridine as i as i would that's it so the pyridines are you are you of the thought then that maybe there was a pyridine release and that maybe a slight fluctuation in temperature created or maybe a few factors came together what's your views on the idea that there was industrially egg waste involved yeah, I mean, I'm just going to take you back to the first question when you asked about when when we first started to see uh, dead lobsters and crabs, and the, uh, it was on the, the first and second of October was the first reports. In they're actually in fishermen's keep pots just in the mouth of the River Tees. On the fourth and fifth, sixth, seventh, that's when the the major wash ups sort of first to be be reported, and that was the first time there was any swell to wash anything up. But what happened during the during that time, and actually started on the twenty fifth of September, twenty twenty one, and finished on the fourth of October, there was a large scale dredging operation ongoing in the mouth of the River Tees. So the UK Orca dredged in, around the region of one hundred and fifty thousand tons of sediment and dumped them uh, two to three miles off uh, the coast, just off uh, off the Tees, and. Uh, what our modeling work has shown with the work of the Newcastle University is that the the disturbance to the sediment caused by that dredger was very intense around the mouth of the Tees. And then the, again, the, the disposal of the sediment out into the, to the sea has caused, you know, a huge plume of sediment. And we're talking about sediment, which comes out of, Tees, which is in Middlesbrough, which is, um, if you're not aware of the area, very heavily polluted and has been for decades and decades. Yes. And um, so I, I, I would say that it's reasonable to, to think that there's been some level of undisturbed sediments being released out into the ocean and 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 the timings of, of when this dredging operation was going on and, and when we started to first see an impact to, deg, uh, you know, to, the, to the sea life. So it's interesting what you say that, and funny enough, as soon as you mentioned the Tees estuary, it, it brought me back, it had me thinking. And this is something obviously totally unrelated, and but absolute fact. As I mentioned earlier with the Clyde, we're talking about a small small area of sea. I'm 
originally from a small fishing village, Helmsdale, which is on the Murray Firth coast, quite far up the Murray Firth coast. My father was a fisherman all his life and lots of, obviously, friends, relations and whatnot. And they had a real problem for one while, that they were, the fish they were catching, taking on board, was dead. And it was going on for quite a while. And they got some studies done, and it was... It was put down, they said at the time, the authorities, that it was too much plankton in the sea and it was there's not enough oxygen. But I'll tell you what, Joe, to this day, the fishermen that are still have survived and are still alive there, but that's quite some time ago. It was just at the time when an aluminium aluminium smelter opened in Invergordon. Yeah. No, is that is that a coincidence? <laughs> I mean, I'm I'm smiling quite a lot here because you are not the first um, fishing fisherman, you know, or fishing person from fishing community to uh, report similar occurrence. And indeed, the uh, too much pl- plankton or an algae bloom, as you, as you're referring to, was what we were told along this stretch of the coastline was the was the most likely cause at the very start and that it was a naturally occurring algae bloom. Similarly, they were told that down on the, the Southampton coast when there was a dredging operation going on for a naval base that wiped out their fishery. Again, they were told it was a harmful algal bloom. Um, it's a very convenient answer to be told, um, to, to fishermen's fishing communities to be told by the government because it, it wipes any responsibility of any uh, industrial practices and puts it all on a naturally occurring algal bloom. Yeah. The first thing that came to my mind was, in the immortal words of Mandy Rice Davis, well, they would say that anyway. What we did witness are in the pots, what we have lots of videos, we've seen them in the harbour, on the beaches, is this symptom that the crabs and lobsters were displaying. It's like this lying on their backs with their claws twitching, claws and legs twitching slowly and unresponsive. You know, even if you, you see them on the beach, lying on the backs, alive, moving, but you put them back into the sea and you know, there's absolutely no response from them all. So uh, it was, um, there was no um, a sort of definite. They didn't have collapsed diagnosis. lungs or diseased filters. There was no one. No, no, no. There, was no there was nothing nothing obvious that, that you could say this has killed them. Um, can I throw a swerve ball at you, Joe? Here's a thought. Yeah, can I, but can I just say one yeah. thing before that? Because the Gary Caldwell, who's a ecotoxicologist at Newcastle University, tested pyridine on crabs. So he put some crabs in a tank, exposed them to pyridine. And what we saw was this exact same symptom displayed in the crabs which were were healthy crabs in normal seawater and they were exposed to pyridine and they displayed this exact same um symptom of on their backs twitching so that's where we you know we we built up a little bit of the evidence that we think it's caused by the pyridine is by testing that in the lab 
do, do, how do you consider the chances of what happened there in Europe in 21 in England, the mortalities as something cyclical that we just don't know about? It's, it's a cyclical thing where possibly crabs die themselves. This is a self-perpetuating cycle. What's your thoughts? Yeah, I mean, I think if that was something which was more common, you know, we would we wouldn't have we wouldn't have raised our suspicions so much because people have been fishing for lobsters and crabs, you know, for 50 years. The individuals have been fishing along this coast for 50 years and their families have been fishing some of them, you know, along this coast for 500 years. There's a real ingrained and I'm sure you're aware, you know, a real ingrained connection between fishermen and their coastlines. And, um, you know, the the reason that this was such a mystery is because there was nothing that we thought correlated, you know, nothing, there was no cause, you know, there was no big storm, there was no regular pattern, you know, no seasonal pattern that we, we could put it down to. We were talking at the end of September, early October, it's good crab fishing time you know there's no there's, there's no pattern or natural occurrence that, that that we can put it down to and and um and that and that's that's really why why we started to kind of look for other answers and look for for other causes have you done the two lists lobsters and crabs and said right because if lobsters didn't die in the same rates of mortality as the crabs what are lobsters resistant to that crabs aren't surely that would reveal a short list of possible causes of death yeah, I mean, lobsters were impacted. You know, the, the lobster oh, right. populations did did. You know, you had a lot die, and the the lobster catches completely dropped off a cliff. Um, you know, just before Christmas, which was a real big kicker to the the fishing industry. But I think lobsters are more mobile, and uh, you know, we we released one of our brood hens from our hatchery out off the coast of Whitby here um, about ten days ago, uh, and just yesterday it was caught by a fisherman ten miles down the coast in Ravenscar. So you know, they they. Uh, they have a, a pretty big ability to to move around, and and I think lobsters are actually a lot cleverer than we 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 know. And um, you know they move around with weather and high pressures and low pressures and all sorts. So I would I think that the lobsters managed to escape it, um, where the crabs were either you know didn't they weren't clever enough or not quick enough to get out. Yeah, yeah. So I mean that's but we we, we did also look at pyridine, you know, and how it was impacting the crabs and. Um, uh, the, the the shape of pyridine in, in its chemical structure um, happens to be very similar to this nematoic parasite worm, um, which, you know, there's no link to this worm causing the impact, but, it, the, but the structure of the pyridine is very similar to this toxin that this worm produces. And this worm has evolved over years to be... Uh, you know, to have a chemical impact to crabs, basically. So, you know, the purity and, and specifically like the crabs that were impacted, velvets and um, cantopagoras, the edible crab. So there's this correlation there between this toxin and, and pyridine and, and how, you know, the kind of relationship of that evolving over years to harm crabs and, and just pyridine happening to be in the water um, and impact crabs. So, did it did it happen anywhere else? Because let's say it was pyridine released into the teas, and it was out to sea, and it disperses. Has there been any crab incidents off the coast of, say, northern France or Portugal, where the flow might go with the pyridines, or no? 
No, and and one thing that's kind of an answer to, that we need to, uh, a question we need to answer, and, and one of those sort of main sticking points really actually from the government side of things um, is the pyridine is a volatile um, substance. In, in, in seawater, it's expected to last that eight days before it, you know, it, does, it gets attacked by pH, attacked by um, oxygen, and um, and breaks down you know, relatively quickly. So the, the the area, you know, so it won't stay in the water basically, you know, to make it all the way down to, to northern France, for example. But it was we don't produce steel actually in the in this area anymore now. You know, it was old steelworks which were shut down a few years ago. So the and what it is, pyridine is from the coking ovens of of the steel manufacturing process, and there was um, so we started the, the dredging operation started on the twenty fifth of September twenty twenty one, on the nineteenth of September twenty twenty one, there was the a demolition of the Dorman Long Tower, which was a big coking ovens. So they demolished. It was the the biggest demolition in Europe in like the last twenty years or something. They demolished this dormer long towers, old coking ovens, a week before they started the dredging operation. So it's not like it is related to the it's related to the old steelworks that that previously used to be there. Um, if the government, if if an independent group of scientists established that that was the cause of death, that dredging operation. Are there a substantial number of fishermen who would have a claim on loss of earnings? I mean, that's not really what where, where the campaign has ever been. Ever been, you know, the direction of the campaign's never gone to that. You know, everybody just wants to to have the environment put right and 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 to see healthy crab numbers again. You know, and to see sustainable, uh, resilient coastal communities and fishing communities. Um, but you know, potentially there would be somewhere down the line if if there was the full suite of evidence that pointed the finger at you know one cause. It's kind of unrealistic that we're ever going to get to that level of detail potentially. Um, and it's certainly not been the driving force behind the campaign. Joe, no. uh, could I ask, uh, was there any consultation with the fishing industry? When I mean, because what I'm thinking as I'm hearing you, it's one thing, it's one cause is the dredging, but to to go two mile out and dump it, that's just outrageous. Mm. Yeah, I mean, it, it's kind of it has sparked actually a kind of national debate about dredging and the practices of dredging and you know we were told you know the world's best scientists have checked this and the, we abide by the highest level of international standards you know it's one of these catchphrases you kind of get getting told and and they sort of do in some ways you know a lot of them are, are defined by that ospar convention and the, you know the, and i'm not trying to say that any of the dredging operations didn't meet these requirements but it seems like these requirements or the criteria for this dredging is just too low just in, inadequate and and too industry friendly um, there's you know, lots of things in the in their allowance to do the dredge, um, such as like the, the 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 sampling regime that they have to do beforehand. It's like a it's a one centimeter scrape every three years when they, before they have to do the dredge, uh, and this is for a maintenance dredge. Um, 
and 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 then they're allowed to dump here at the two to three mile dumps. There is a further off dump six to six to seven miles off the ground, um, which which the start of this year when they started to dump there, and this is capital dredge work for the, the for the Freeport, um, which is where we start to get into the, the politics. But when they started to dump there at the sixty six or seven mile dumping grounds, that wiped out all the nephrops fishery and like a light switch. As soon as you started dredging there all of the prawn fishermen in Hartlepool of all boats gone up for sale, steaming 20 miles away, not making any money. It's, uh, you know, yeah. No, the person paying that dredger is asking one question. It's not where should we dump this? It's where can we get away with dumping it? How close to shore? Because the difference between a hundred miles with a dredger with 300 ton of dredge to two miles is a huge cost in fuel, time, labor, everything else. That's a terrible. And what else strikes me is it's two miles off the coast of Britain. And it's 143 miles off the coast of Europe. And it's almost like a keep it as far away from us as you possibly can is what's going on there. Because it's there's no scientist could possibly argue that dumping that two miles off the coast of a country is a wise decision. It just how did how was that justified? Were there international big scientists saying this is safe before that happened well you know they've been dumping there for 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 years to be honest with you it's a it's a recognized you know and it's a it's a defined spoil ground um there's a mile square um plot which which they can dump in and and it is i mean it is get it does get a little difficult because they have been dredging maintenance dredging the t's you know every month for for years because every port is dredged um, but what we sort of saw here is there was a lot of land remediation works going on, such as the demolition of the Dorman Long Tower, but there was also other works going along in the Tees estuary, um, which coincided with this. There was a kind of urgent bit of maintenance dredging that went on quicker than they usually do. So there's quite a lot of factors at, uh, factors at play. And, and um, But, you know, they, they to answer that question, they, they, they were doing everything as per uh, international standards um and and you know, i think this is exposed so, yeah, i guess one of the issues is the international standards are the same as if it's in the tees estuary compared to say you know whitby harbor here where there's never ever been any chemical production never been any industrial waste being dumped into the river and it's the same standards as it would be in the Tees estuary, for example. So, you know, it, kind of a, this one brush, broad brush of stroke doesn't really work when you've got somewhere. So an environment such as the Tees, which is just so heavily polluted. I, do you ever, was, was it ever thought of maybe instead of getting them to dump it at sea, get two lorry loads landed on onto two lorries Dump one in Westminster and the other in Holyrood. <laughs> it would have been. A, I think you should join our campaign, Jim. I think you've. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> it was. Uh, I mean, we 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 like. We asked. We've asked and asked and asked. You know, all we want. All we want to do is, because this this dredging round that went on when it triggered the first die-offs was 
um, precedented a, a much bigger one million ton dredging operation that went on a capital dredging operation going on. And all we asked is in in response to or in the in the view of like everything dying and washing up the coast, can we not have a, an increase in the amount of sampling and surveying that goes on? Can't we take not a lorry load, but just a, a jam jar full of the sediment that's being dredged and test it, test it, you know, once a week? Just so we can understand exactly what is in the sediment, because it's all all the testing's done prior to doing any of the dredge work, and then it's approved, and then they can just dredge, you know, the million tons after that. And all we wanted to do is just test the, the sediment, which is actually being dredged and being dumped at sea, but it was re refused and declined multiple times. But isn't 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 it isn't it crazy, Joe? Do you know, just as you're speaking and you think of it, the it's all about all now about green environmental and and uh, be kind to the earth and there's all this bodies uh, that are supposed to be saving our planet and you go on to their websites and the first thing you see is a box donate here and they're just money making organizations and joe's yeah, got joe's got that on his website so <laughs> yes. well that's yeah. a good cause that's a good cause oh, yeah, another, a good thing, another another thing joe you mentioned that jokingly i would be happy to join your cause if you felt i was of any value to you yeah, i'd be brilliant. happy to do that yes but, but what it reminds me of that's that's Pollute, heavily polluted stuff being dumped in the sea. Conservationists, you never hear them mention it. It's the yeah. same, we have the exact same situation almost in the north, down the west coast of Scotland, up by the west coast of Shetland, where we have a fleet of foreign fisher bo fishing boats they're dumping their gear, you know, monofilament, plas it's plastic, and all we hear about plastic in the seas, and that guys are dumping the only nets that come ashore, only gill nets and long lines that come ashore here, Joe, is what the Scottish fishermen take in, which, which they pick up in their gear. And that is, and they're cheating on quota, they're landing over the quota and all the rest of it. And yet not one thing do we hear about from government or conservationists. Yeah, I mean, with this case here, I mean, it was like, we, I guess, you know, the, the kind of strength of our campaign and trying to get something done about this has been it's been so led by the fishing community you know it's, it's been we've been the most impacted by it and you know, been the driving force to try and get academics involved to try and get you know speak to the government about it to, to try and get as many you know raise money for example to try and get the sampling done and it's all come from basically from the the fishing communities along this coast and um and, and you know, we, we formed our own group, the, the Northeast Fishing Collective, to try and you know collectively work on 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 finding a resolution or finding an answer. So, yeah, I mean, I guess in this instance, we haven't needed the uh, <laughs> the environmental NGOs and so on. But, but one of the biggest kickers is with this South Bank 
in development with a dredge, which has been championed by Ben Houchin, who's the, the Tees Valley mayor, who may, I think maybe referred to earlier, actually. Um, he's championing this, this free port. Um, and the reason what's going to be the free port's going to be used for is to produce wind turbine um, blades. So, you know, for the green energy revolution and, and, you know, one of the biggest kickers with this is that the, the way that it's been delivered in, in such a speed and such a scale that it's threatened um, the environment <laughs> for ultimately what it's trying to say in the long run. But What, what, what are you? Are you a, you're not an NGO? Are you a gov- part of a university? What's your, how's your organization set up? What are you? The, the Northeast Fishing Collective, uh, referred to, that's basically so just a group that we formed, an association that we formed, which we're looking to formally um, register probably as a community interest company. But essentially, we, we're a, a collective of nine commercial uh, fishing and angling associations uh, along the impacted area. Are made up of the Whitby Commercial Fishing Association, Hartlepool Boating Association, um, you know, the Redcar Commercial Fishing Association, and so on. You know, the, 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 everybody who's been impacted um, in terms of fishing and angling along this coast um, is part of that. And that's made up of, of fishermen, of you know, shoreside, of, of processors, of fish shop owners. Um, uh, so it kind of just brought together the, the different the towns and, and fishing communities along the coast, which I don't think has ever been done before along here. So, um, you know, we're kind of forced together, I suppose, due to the disasters that we were experiencing. It's, 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 it looked by the, what you're saying there, Joe, what, what more evidence is needed? You've done all the tests with the, with that chemicals and stuff. And my goodness, what, who can come up with an argument or see it? We, we, we're getting this published. We, we have we have taken our own sediment samples. We've found pyridine in those sediment samples uh, in the teas. We've exposed that pyridine to crabs and shown that it causes that impact. Uh, we, we've got major sources of pyridine. Not only was the Dorman Long Tower destroyed, but in the months running up to the dredging operation, they also um, destructed the virtualist plant which chemical production plant which was europe's largest processor of pyridine and pyridine products which was decommissioned in the in the months running up to it and we know from freedom information requests was then dumped by northumberland water into the river tees the the the, some of the missing links are like getting the quantities of pyridine um and and understanding how that could have covered the, the sort of spatial area because obviously the, the old school um, the thought on pollution was that the solution to pollution is dilution and we'll just dump it into the seas and it'll sort itself out. We're smarter than that nowadays and we, we're trying to prevent, prevent that, um, but just trying to connect those dots in the concentrations. And we're getting, we're really getting uh, a lot of opposition because there is a, a huge agenda to push this free port through. You know, there's a huge agenda. It's a big Brexit Britain agenda. There's eight free ports going around the country and we seem to be unintentionally threatening that by trying to protect our environment and trying to protect our livelihoods. It's been turned into a political 
tennis match uh, by the people that are trying to protect their agendas and protect the free port by they're trying to smear us into turning it into a p political debate which we've never ever been opposed to the free port or any development all we're trying to do is protect the environment and prevent harmful chemicals going in there so that work's due to be published by the universities we've also taken further deep core samples uh, and look so we can look back through uh, the history and 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 find those cores uh, find what's in the cores what's in the sediment going back so we we may be able to look and see you know if there's any historical levels of other chemicals or pyridines you know we talked a lot about pyridines but there is a, a, a um a strong chance you know that could be a suite of different chemicals there's such, such a uh such a polluted area you know that they could all those chemicals could be interacting together and and you know forming new toxins which are harmful to, to crabs and lobsters so there's a lot of work a lot of work done. see that suite of chemicals you described there would that then again disperse after about eight days say in the sea it wouldn't be you wouldn't read it well, well we, don't, we don't know really you know and then there's lots of difference between that's there's a lot of work to be done you know and what i would say pyridines don't if they're locked under the sediment in anaerobic conditions without oxygen they won't break down so they only break down when they're in the water so if it could be in the sediment and lay dormant there for years, be exposed in the water and then break down. So somebody like the environmental agency or the government agencies that haven't done any sediment sampling have found that they did, did some before it, but pyridine isn't one of the chemicals which they look for. Um, and they took water samples to look for pyridine. But by the time you take a water sample and get it into the lab and analyze it, maybe a number of weeks later, just it being in its pot, it will break down and it's that it's, it's volatile in that way. So, you know, the, uh, we're not we've never said that we have every bit of evidence um, answered uh, or we could provide every single bit of evidence. But I think, you know, it's quite evident that the level of evidence that we have certainly surpasses this random theory of a novel pathogen, which has got zero evidence. It certainly surpasses the algal bloom theory, which had zero evidence and now has been dismissed. Um, and it pr pr gives us reason to enact on the precautionary principle, which is an OSPAR convention, funnily enough, you know, the same rules that they will abide by, by for the dredging license, but they'll cherry pick when they want to use it. And it enacts the, the precautionary principle of the OSPAR Convention, which states that if there's any reason to doubt, to doubt the activity that is undertaken is causing an impact or releasing chemicals out into the marine environment, the, the activity should be halted until you can prove without reason to doubt that it's safe to do so. Yeah. Yeah. So that's what we've been working through. We've got there's. Uh, academics you know there's, there's four universities working on this paper you know and the, and the, the unfortunately the the, the mechanism mechanic the mechanics of <laughs> universities and academia uh turn a little slower than you know than we would like um but when we have that when it's been peer-reviewed um you know it's certainly going to add to that body of evidence You'll be really popular if you stage or stop the Freeport project. Oh, you'll be loved. <laughs> it's going to be it's going to be it's going to increase the business and the tease by tenfold.
So it's going to probably exacerbate the problem. Uh, the other thing, I, the other thing I wonder, Joe. I suppose you've already done all the come up with all the ideas. First time you get one washed, and the next time you get one washed in the beach. I hope that you never do it again. But if you have, well, if the politicians and the scientists and bodies are ignoring it, they must think it's okay. So, have you asked one of them to eat one? We we have actually. <laughs> we did at the start, and you know, we, I mean, we um, the, everything's been tested. You know, the, 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 because there's been the food safety agency been testing all the, the animals, and you know, I guess the volatility of like pyridine it can have an impact to the animal, but it doesn't seem to be causing any like harm actually to the to safety of the food, um, which is a weird way to to think about it, and probably not. You know, probably I don't want to put everyone off on, on eating stuff around here, but everything has been tested and, and people haven't been, in, been getting sick and we would know by now. Um, but this volatility of, of pyridines can, you know, prevent that from happening. Um, we, we, we are on the side of trying to prevent any of these chemicals getting into the environment and getting into any of the, the crabs and lobsters. So, you know, because we primarily for these kind of reasons, we don't want, sick crabs and lobsters and we don't want people to get sick from eating them we're very much trying to campaign for our protection of our fishing industry and um you know want it to thrive and be be healthy moving forward so you know but all we can do is is go on what we're told by the likes of the agent food safety agencies and 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 scientists that are investigating it but Joe, uh, there must be something going on there when it's crustaceans, because uh, we have—it's very common around the Scottish coast here that we get the very, the algae blooms, and they get a really the the, the things like the bivalve mollusks, like the far, far the people cultivate the like uh, oysters. Mm and uh, oysters and uh, mussels and things like that. And I watch filter feeders, and they have to test their water. They have to do water sampling Mm -hmm. all the time. And there'll be periods in the year, possibly mostly when it may be a higher temperature and the bloom expands, and they'll they'll shut the fishing, they'll shut the, the harvesting down for that area. But the thing is, although it part PSP paralytic shellfish poisoning, which I always think is a terrible name to give it, but it'll affect humans. But it doesn't harm the species. It doesn't harm the oyster or the mussel. But it it will harm a human to to eat it it's almost like it's the yeah. opposite yeah yeah certainly i mean um you know, i guess that volatility what we did see you know was quite a lot of weakened crabs and, and certainly lobsters for 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 a long time you know year after we started to see the impact of um and uh you know some of the scientists that we've been working with suggested it could cause like some kind of like alzheimer's dementia impact you know a long-term uh, neurological impact to the um crustacean um, after after being exposed or maybe exposed to a, a, a lower level, you know, but a more, more constant. So, yeah. Question. 
we're gonna we'll wrap things up. We're almost at our hour, but I'm I'm fascinated to know what stage of the cycle, the annual cycle, were the crabs at? Had they just spawned? Were they about to spawn? Where were they? How many? Because if they were all carrying berries, then the losses are incalculable. But were they a month after that? What, what stage do you know? Um, they would have. It would have been just after they buried uh, or released the berries mainly. Okay. Um, but you know. We're, I'm expecting, I know from my own work with lobster larvae that they're extremely susceptible to poor water quality. So um, I can't imagine that the, the, you know, the larvae would have done very, done great to survive, you know, really through that. Um, you know, we really did see a huge impact to crab numbers, like velvet swimming crabs, you know, not a commercial species around here anymore. They have been in the past, but um you get maybe five to 10 in every lobster pot. Usually, you know, they, they're the first ones to get to the bait. They can get into the pot easy. You know, they're very quick and you're scraping them out of the pot. So, you know, out of a thousand pots, you might expect to see two to 5,000 of them. And after the impact, and it's still that like that today, out of a thousand pots nowadays, you might see five velvet crabs. It's, it's, it's like it's a complete eradication of a species. 95% have been lost, you know. Similarly, in the impacted area with the edible crab, it's 80, 90% lost. Lobsters are about 50% down. It's a complete eradication of cra crabs and crustaceans. What's replaced that are species such as starfish and, and whelks. You know, these scavenger species have exploded in the impacted areas and the pots are full of of, of you know, there's pictures from fishermen where the fishermen have been filling up boxes of starfish steaming them five miles out to sea and dumping them to try and get them off the ground you know it's yeah, unseen before the, 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 this this ecosystem shift along this bit of coast um and a, a natural last question would be for anybody listening to this episode Whereabouts can they follow you through a few throw a few dollars at you or subscribe to your mission? Where can people get a hold of you? Yeah, there's um, yeah. Thanks for asking that. So yeah, you can find the the Northeast Fishing Collective either on uh, Twitter or on Facebook. Um, you can also follow my Twitter as well. That's Redfern. Um, the on the Northeast Fishing Collective page and, and on mine actually, you'll see a link to our Just Giving. Um, uh, campaign page where we're raising funds to to pay for sampling equipment to pay for surveys to pay for uh independent led research to try and try and get to the bottom of this and your two weeks holiday to cyprus <laughs> i'm joking joe <laughs> just going back to the other crew that my father mentioned earlier that are all asking for money for ecological projects i think this actually sounds like one with merit because the list of ev the list of evidence you've got and I think, I'd, you know, we'd love to have you back on a month or two after the published paper. I'd love to hear the impact that has. All you need is one strong journalist behind that paper and, and you're off. The whole thing begins. Yeah, I mean, if you. You, if you look into what the corruption uh, scandals that's going on around this Palestine, it's all come about because of the dead crabs and lobsters and, and journalists looking into this part of the coastline more because of what happened with the crabs and lobsters and the reaction actually from some of the right-wing MPs and the, and the mayor, the reaction to kind of 
the overreaction, I should say, you know, to any kind of accusation that it was caused by any sort of industry. And that has then highlighted the attention or brought to the attention of a lot of journalists all over the country. And, you know, we've done, as it will, it's, it's, it, we never wanted it to turn into a political match, but it's, it's certainly, you know, captured the attention of journalists nationally, internationally. So there's a, there's a lot of attention on that, but be, I'll be pleased to come back um, and give you an update. Uh-huh. We'll do that. We'll get in touch with you about eight weeks or three months after that paper. It'd be fascinating. Joe, I would just round up myself by saying that I, you can take it from me. I and I personally and through our podcast, a hundred and ten percent behind you in everything that you've said and you're doing. If we can help you in any way, we can. We will. And and. Uh, it just makes me think, you know, if obviously being from fishing people, eh, we're talking about an industry that feeds a nation and provides an enormous eh, foreign currency and, and f- food going to the continent. And it's been providing jobs for hundreds of years. So it's not like something that's just cropped up and said, I want a bit of share of the action. This is an industry going back a lot longer than oil and renewables or, or anything like that. Yeah, definitely. You know, and that's one of the biggest things that is missed by people, the heritage and, and what's lost. You know, if these fishing communities and, and, and the, the fishing community in Hartlepool is, is, I mean, Whitby's just on the sort of extremities, but the one in Hartlepool is really up against this, looking like, you know, they're going to struggle to survive. And uh, what's lost is not only the jobs we have today, but is that long history and heritage, which you, which you talk about, which, um, you know, is a real sad thing. Absolutely. And and the, the one answer when we spoke about our situations, you there and when what when I was recalling my one in 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 Helmsdale, the same answer. I'm talking about the sixties. And now and you're talking in two thousand, so we're we're talking in almost a seventy or eighty years and they're still coming up with the same answer. Which is bullshit right from the start joe thank you very much for joining us it's a strong 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 message to get out joe and well done and thank you so much for partaking with us i just think this is a message we just need to help get out thank you thanks for having me thank you Thank you for listening to Seafood Matters Podcast. You can subscribe and leave a review wherever you get your podcasts. You can join me on Instagram, Twitter, or Facebook by searching for at Seafood Matters Podcast. If you have any questions or episode suggestions, please email me at jim at seafoodmatterspodcast.com or get in touch with me through my website, www.seafoodmatterspodcast.com. Music.